Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to John. We are in chapter 20 and reading verses 19 through 31. And again, I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. The world of... Technology is at once fascinating and frightening. When, for example, you view a blockbuster movie filled with unbelievable action shots and fantastic stunts, it can simply take your breath away. But then, when you discover that many of those action scenes were filmed in front of a green screen and the safety of a studio, and all that background and movement was actually enhanced through computer-generated intelligence, you then become fascinated with what technology is capable of doing. But that fascination can quickly turn to fright once again when you realize that we are entering a period in world history when bad actors can use this same technology to fool the world with what are known as deep fakes. 
Some of you may remember the advertising slogan from that era of cassette tapes back in the early 1980s, and the tagline was, is it live or is it Memorex? You remember that? Well, that question is going to be increasingly asked over the next many years, but in a very different way. Folks will be wondering if the video they are seeing is the real thing or is it a deep fake. Now, if it's a video of Bigfoot wandering off into the forest, that's kind of inconsequential. But if two weeks before a presidential election, a video pops up that shows the leading candidate engaged in a disqualifying activity, that's quite another When you cannot be entirely sure, it makes it very difficult when you step into the polling booth to cast your vote. But suppose you were fooled even by that. It's more than likely not the end of the world. It's not like you alone are responsible for the election results. You might peel the bumper sticker off your car, but there's always another opportunity to set things right at the next election. But what if the world's leaders were fooled into believing a great lie? What if the video was so horrific that it sparked another world war and many thousands of lives were lost? Where intelligence agencies were claiming that they have checked the tape for its authenticity and they say, yes, it is real and time is of the essence and we need to strike now before it's too late. Now we're talking about things that are very consequential and we may learn only later that it was all based upon a lie. It could happen. Some would argue that it already has. But what if such a monumental decision was solely yours to make and it was your life alone that depended upon it? Suppose you had to make a decision that was so significant that it meant the difference between your life or death. How certain would you want to be then that the facts of the case that were being presented to you were true and not simply a deep fake? My guess would be that you would want to be absolutely certain that what you were staking your life upon was the real thing. Well, it is this that brings us to the text for today. When the news of Christ's resurrection from the dead reached the ears of the disciples, it was truly good news, but it was not without uncertainty. Yes, the various women who brought the news were absolutely certain that it was Jesus they had seen along the way. But does that make it so? If it's just one person, there's room for a larger degree of doubt. Under tough cross-examination of a single witness, a good defense attorney can establish enough doubt in the minds of a jury to give them pause. But when it's more than one witness making the same claim, that degree of doubt begins to shrink a good bit. It's one thing to fool one person, it's quite another To fool several. Of course they were women. Now ladies, don't 
be offended by that. I am not speaking for me. I'm speaking for the first century Jewish male. In case you're unaware, women, along with shepherds, were not allowed to provide testimony in a court of law. The shepherds as a class were believed to be guilty of a variety of low-level crimes and such as thievery and burglary and the like. And if you cannot be trusted with the property of others, then how can you be trusted to speak the truth? And while that was not the case with women, they were deemed to be too emotional, too unreliable, too inconsistent to provide information that would help judges come to a correct conclusion. And, and then, of course, there was that whole thing about some woman named Eve. So their opinions were not highly valued. Which makes Jesus' first resurrection appearance to women something For men to ponder. Jesus didn't have to do that. The very first thing, Sunday morning, he could have just as easily popped into the upper room where the disciples were all hiding for fear of the Jews and had the interaction with them that he does on the evening of that first day. But that's not what he does. The Scriptures indicate that it was to the women to Mary Magdalene specifically that he first appears. Which raises some issues if we are attempting to discern between reality or fabrication. If, as some suggest, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a deep fake, it has no element of truth to it, but is simply an elaborate fiction intended to fool the masses Would you create a story in the first century Israel that uses a group of women as your first witnesses? You would not. If it's intended to be a convincing but fabricated story, you would want Jesus to appear to some men, perhaps even prominent men. Maybe a Nicodemus as a member of the Sanhedrin or a Joseph of Arimathea. Of course, that raises problems, does it not? Because all someone would have to do to disprove your story is to approach those men and ask them whether they had an encounter with the risen Christ. And when they said no, that would be the end of your fabricated story. Jesus appearing to the women, first of all, does not point to the story's fabrication. It lends to its authenticity. But so also does the encounter that John relates on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were gathered in the upper room utilizing safety protocols because of their fear of the Jews. Now again, if you are fabricating a story with the intent of fooling the masses, would you cast yourself in the story as a sniveling bunch of school children afraid of your own shadow? I think not. The women in this supposed novel are the ones who demonstrate courage and bravery, leaving the safety of their homes before dawn to enter a dark cave and get to work embalming a dead body. If the story is a fabrication, those roles would be reversed and the men would be just this shy of superhero status. But what is revealed in this portion of the story 
is that the disciples, upon their encounter with the risen Christ, take note of something that must also have caused people to wonder. For they discover that the resurrected body of Jesus still bore the marks of his crucifixion. You see, there were philosophical ideas in this historical era that suggested that the physical body was to be shunned and that the human spirit was to be celebrated. The notion was that the material body was more like a prison of the spirit and that upon a person's death, that liberated the spirit to some form of afterlife. But this story of the resurrection was teaching something entirely different. It was saying, first of all, that the resurrection of the body was the ultimate outcome. It was declaring that the material body was not to be despised or abhorred, but was to be valued because this was how God originally created us as embodied souls made in the image of God, capable of being in relationship with God on a variety of levels, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, physically. Now, do you see the relevance of the bodily resurrection of Christ for our day? When we have, for the past five decades, witnessed a desecration of the human body in the womb to a desecration now taking place in operating rooms where doctors are willing to sacrifice on the altar of financial gain their Hippocratic oath to do no harm, governing their medical decisions solely on an individual's personal delusion that they are really their biological opposite. Now there is the deep fake. There is the lie that is being foisted upon mankind with an effectiveness that testifies to the darkness of our depraved mind. The bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead, bearing the marks of His crucifixion, declares to all of humanity that God values the body. The Son of God deigned to take on our flesh in order to dwell with us, to commune with us. And when He completed His atoning work, He did not shed the body as though it was worthless, but He redeemed it through His resurrection and for all of eternity. The Son will bear those scars as a sign of the great love with which He loved us. If this story was fabricated, with the idea of gaining traction in the first century, you certainly would not have thought to raise the body of Christ from the dead. And if you did, you certainly would not have done so with it bearing the scars of His crucifixion. To die on a cross was a disgrace and humiliation like no other. It was a form of capital punishment reserved for the worst of the worst. And yet, as John relates the story, it was these marks that confirmed the news they had heard that morning from the women who went to the tomb that the body of their dear Savior was raised from the dead just as He said. We suggested a moment ago that Jesus had intentionally presented Himself to the women who had come to the tomb, first of all, instead of supernaturally appearing to the disciples who were behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. But now, when Jesus intentionally does 
pop into the upper room and presents himself to the disciples, he does so with one of them missing. We're given no explanation for the whereabouts of Thomas, but we need to understand that the timing of this appearance was not accidental or outside of the control of the Lord. Jesus intentionally appeared knowing that Thomas was absent. Now again, this does not take away from the account, but strengthens it because of the reaction that Thomas has to what is a growing consensus that Jesus has conquered sin and death and the grave and is on the loose, evidently wandering around the countryside, engaging with certain disciples, assuring them that what he said about his rising on the third day was absolutely true. So what was Thomas's reaction? Well, when he heard the testimonies of his colleagues, the excited renditions of their encounter with the risen Lord, Thomas found it more than a little difficult to believe. Though he had been a witness to a few resurrections already, the the son of the widow of Nain, the daughter of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue near Capernaum, and of course the very dramatic resurrection of Lazarus after his being in the grave for four days. But then all those resurrections occurred because Jesus was there. But what Thomas was expected to believe now was that the miracle worker Jesus, who had been in the tomb for three days, had the power and the authority to raise himself from the dead. How is that possible? In the mind of Thomas, that's not possible. And while he may not be able to explain what's happening in these appearances to the women and to his colleagues, he understands something that may not have occurred to them. To proclaim this resurrection is the equivalent of signing your own death warrant. Look what the authorities did to Jesus. What do you suppose will happen to us if we go about saying something crazy like this? I mean, I have a family to think about. I have a career to pursue. I'll lose my friends if I associate with a bunch of loonies. I I won't get into that fraternity or that sorority or that golf club or whatever organization that is important to me if people know that I believe that a dead man raised himself to life after three days. So I will not believe this. I will never believe this. Unless I not only see him, but am given the opportunity to touch his body, to put my finger in those nail prints that you say exist, put my hand in the wound in his side. Those are my conditions. Now there are many people like Thomas who immediately dismiss the bodily resurrection of Christ And they offer up a variety of speculative, alternative explanations that actually require more faith than does a resurrection because they, like Thomas, simply find it too hard to believe this. But what you never hear them explain is Thomas. How does a confirmed skeptic, the the original agnostic, go from doubt to faith, 
to worship in less than 60 seconds. If you're here today and you have never bought into the whole Easter story because you are of a mind that dead men do not rise to life again except in zombie movies, you need to know that Thomas is your checkmate. Because you have to account for him because he was like you. He didn't believe it either. He not only demanded proof, he demanded a specific kind of proof. He was not satisfied with the testimony of others. He wasn't satisfied with the video or audio evidence, what the eyes could see and the ears could hear. He insisted that he be given the opportunity to embrace the risen Lord himself. To feel that scar tissue. To run his fingers through the hair at Jesus' brow and examine the marks left by that crown of thorns to confirm that he was material, that he was substantive, that it was actually his body and that he was alive and that he was not a ghost. And when Jesus appeared a week later, he came primarily because of Thomas And because of you, who are skeptical. He came so that Thomas would have no reason to doubt any longer. He came so that Thomas would understand that his Lord does possess the power and authority to raise himself from the dead. Because as Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes lives and believes in me, shall never die. Do you believe this? And Thomas did. And his response was a declaration of faith and an act of worship. He answered, my Lord and my God. And this is what would get them all killed. They were declaring to the world that this Jesus was not simply a wonderful teacher or a truly good man or a marvelous physician who could heal any illness. They were declaring that he was the incarnation of the very Son of God, that he was the King of kings and that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him and that his resurrection from the dead proved it. Search the Scriptures. See how often the resurrection of Christ appears in the preaching and the teaching of the apostles. But maybe you're still not convinced. Well, then consider this. It isn't simply Thomas's reaction to the risen Christ that should convince the skeptic to believe, but rather the impact that the resurrection had upon them all For as I said before, it is this proclamation that would lead to the death of them all. For those who wield earthly power and authority are not inclined to bow the knee to anyone. But if you want to know whether the resurrection of Christ from the dead was real or a deep fake, then consider the fact that every one of these apostles went to the gallows or to the cross, or to their beheading, or their stoning, or into exile, with the words of Thomas upon their lips, My Lord and my God, 
And this they would not do unless it be true that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. In the world in which we live, this is not only a true thing, this is the truest thing of all things. It is the most real thing of all real things. For the reality of the resurrection changes the entire trajectory of human history. It means that death and damnation is not the final word to our existence. It means that a new heaven and a new earth is on the way. It means that sin has an expiration date and that all who are in Christ will experience the sanctification and glorification that Christ has also promised. It means that the Word of God is true and you can rely upon it. It means a host of things that we do not have time to explore today, but one of the things that it means is that you not only have reason to hope as you face your own mortality, but you have reason to rejoice and to be at peace. John indicates in the final verse of this chapter that there is even more evidence than what he has included in his gospel, but that what he has testified to is so that you can with all confidence put your trust, put your faith in Christ to believe that he is the Christ and that by doing so you may have life in his name. Is it absolutely necessary that you believe in the Christ who was resurrected in the body? Yes, it is. For to disbelieve in the resurrection of Christ from the dead is to call Him a liar. He said He would rise in three days. Either He did or He did not. If He did not, then He's a liar. And you can ignore whatever else He ever said. To disbelieve in the resurrected Christ is to turn Him into something that He's not. An anemic do-gooder whom you will dismiss whenever you disagree with him. If it be true that Christ is not raised from the dead, then it means, as Paul says, that faith is futile and we are still in our sins and of all people we are most to be pitied. But because he is raised from the dead, as he said, then all who are in him are also raised from the dead, as Paul expounds in Romans chapter 6. Friends, it is the bodily resurrection of Christ that provides us with our greatest hope as well as our greatest joy. For it changes everything for us. And so I say again to you this morning, He is risen. Amen.